Uh, that's actually, three weeks is the longest break I've ever had. Uh, and it was great and awful, so there you go. Um, we are currently going through an Advent series, and if you're not familiar with the usual practice of Advent, um, it can be very diverse in its expression in the church. It always fl uh, follows the four Sundays that lead up to and contain uh, uh, December 25th, Christmas. Um, it is effectively a rehearsal of anticipation. Advent means coming. Okay, and so this is a practice of expectation to prepare us for what we celebrate on Christmas. And the, although there is a diverse uh, way of going about the celebration of Advent, one of the most common is to focus on four primary themes of Christmas, which are hope, which we looked at last week, peace, which we'll look at this morning, joy, which will be next week, and then on Christmas Eve, the 24th, we'll look at love. Um, hope, peace, joy, and love. And so this morning we're going to talk about peace, and peace is woven into the Christmas story. If you're familiar, it's the shepherds watching their sheep by night, and the angels come, and one of the proclamations they make is in the birth of this baby, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. If you were with us last week as we looked in the book of Isaiah, one of the titles given for he who would come, the Messiah, the promised one, was the Prince of Peace. And we're pretty big on peace. We're pro-peace. Very few people aren't. But I am afraid uh, that that word is so broad in its meaning and so deep, we have a tendency to narrow it and to control it. And I'll illustrate this. So here we have this birth of the Prince of Peace. Here, here we have the proclamation of peace on earth. And yet the next thing that happens is a, is a wicked king tries to plot the death of said baby and murders a bunch of children under the age of two because he's so afraid. It's a proclamation of peace, and yet Jesus comes, and as an adult, he says, don't think I came to bring peace. <laughs> I came with a sword to divide houses, to separate husbands and wives and mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters. When we look at Jesus' life, it's not one um, that is free of difficulty, nor is the life he offers his followers. So what in the world does it mean when we say that the one who would come, the one who has come in Jesus Christ, is the Prince of Peace? So this morning, I'd like to look, um, <clears throat> after the precedent that Wayne set last week of looking in the Old Testament instead of the New, I'd like to look at another prophecy of the coming Messiah, this one in a lesser-known book, one of the minor prophets, the minor prophet Micah. And so, if you use the index at the front of your Bible, you'll find the last 12 books of the Old Testament are known as the Minor Prophets. Micah is one of those. It follows right on the back end of Jonah, um, who's probably the best known of the Minor Prophets. And we're going to be in Micah chapter 5. Before we read this chapter through together, let me introduce you to the message of the prophet Micah. He's speaking to Judah, which is the southern part of the nation of Israel. At this point, Israel, the northern part of the nation of Israel, the other tribes, uh, have gone into exile. They've been 
routed. They've been destroyed. Judah is still standing. And the people that Micah addresses here are people who are looking towards the future and looking towards very positive dividends. They're pretty sure the horizon is golden and everything is going well, but their community, their life is full of injustice. And so much like many times we can relate to, many places we can relate to, uh, he speaks as if the world uh, of Judah, the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer because the rich are getting richer on the backs of the poor. He speaks of how the rich are turning the poor widows out of their houses, and he says, so God is going to turn you out of the land. And so he's creating a relatively different narrative, one not of prosperity, but one of judgment. And it's interesting if you read the book, because intermingled and interwoven with this message of judgment is a long-distance promise of prosperity. And so effectively, they're settling short of what God has for them, and that's going to lead to judgment, but it doesn't lead solely to judgment. God has promises on the other end of their consequences. And so it looks way beyond the people of Judah uh, and the time before, uh, before the Babylonians come in and rout them just like their sister Israel. It looks beyond that time and begins to look towards what God is finally going to do. And so as he looks at peace, as we'll see this morning, um, it's broader than we usually think. I'm afraid that many of us settle for a peace that is at best piecemeal, that is limited. We'll settle for, uh, you know, peace and quiet. That's all we want. We just want to not be disturbed. That's our salvation. That's our heaven. Um, Or we'll settle for some sort of tolerance, which is significance but not sufficient. And so as we look here at this prophecy of the coming Messiah, it's bound up in this concept of peace, and I promise you it's broader than we generally talk about in this season. And so let's read the chapter through, chapter 5, verse 1. Now, muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrians come into the land and tread in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with swords and the land of Nimrod at its entrances, and he shall deliver us from the Assyrian. When he comes into our land and treads within our border, then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people, like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man, nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations, in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. 
which when it goes down, uh, when, it, when, it, when it goes through, treads down and tears to pieces, and there is none to, to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and destroy your chariots. I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds, and I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Let's pray. Father, the longing we have for peace in all of its aspects is a God-given one. It's a recognition that things are not as they should be, that something is wrong. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't settle. We wouldn't settle for a peace that is shallow, a peace that is incomplete, a peace that is of our own making and uh, trembles and totters and we have to constantly uh, protect on our own. I pray, Lord, that you would introduce us this morning to he who is our peace. His name is Jesus, and in his name we pray. Amen. As I mentioned, Micah's audience, the kingdom of Judah, they don't see what's just on the horizon. They see prosperity, business as usual. And so verse 1 points to what's really coming down the pike. He says, now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And so they see, you know, prosperous fields and, like I said, high dividends. And he sees Judah as if it's already under siege. As if the armies are gathered and surrounding it. As if there's no way out of what's coming. And he speaks of this being so... Uh, so life-altering, it notice it says that the, with the rod, these enemies strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. The word there for judge is speaking of ruler. Micah generally refuses to call the king of Judah a king at all. But that's who he's referring to. Okay? He says the leaders of, of Israel, or of Judah in particular, aren't acting royally. And so he, he downgrades their title. But here, the recognition is that he will be so defenseless, this ruler that he's going to be shamefully whacked with the scepter of this incoming king, okay? Just bonked on the head. No one to defend him. No weapon necessary, just, just the scepter. It's in this context that he looks beyond that coming judgment. So here's the fate of the ruler of Judah as it is. Here's the fate of Judah is a kingdom as it is. And verse 2 brings us into the promise. It says, But you, O Bethlehem, Epathra, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler is in Israel. Do you see the contrast there? Your ruler, the one you believe in, the one you're trusting in, he's going to be routed, but a new ruler is coming. And he's coming from a surprising place, the little town of Bethlehem, okay? 
Now, it, it notice it says here in verse 2 that Bethlehem is too little to be among the clans of Judah, or literally, it's the littlest among the clans of Judah. If you go back to the settling of the land, as things are divvied up between the tribes in the book of Joshua, it lists many, many cities in the tribe of Judah, but not Bethlehem. And that history of it being so small and insignificant is maintained, but it is of historical significance to the audience that he's writing to because there is one person of note who came from Bethlehem and that's David. King David was a Bethlehemite. He was from the clan of Apathra. Okay, and so if you go back and you read about his father Jesse, you'll find him settled in Bethlehem when Samuel comes to anoint him as king. And so we've got almost a King Arthur aspect of this prophecy of the now but future king, like Merlin prophesied of King Arthur. Uh, there's this tying of titles. But nonetheless, it's not what you would expect. Their deliverance isn't going to come out of the high and mighty in Jerusalem, out of the lineage that is right now. Uh, Isaiah puts it this way. He says that a branch will come out of the stump of Jesse. Jesse's family, by this point in history, they're relatively minimal, unknown, relinquished to poverty. But there, again, is going to come the deliverer. Now, it's worth pointing out that this verse is written 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. Micah was a contemporary with Isaiah. They're writing at the same time. And so it's Isaiah who tells us how this Messiah will come. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. For the virgin will give birth and you will name him Emmanuel. Chapter 7 and chapter 9. But it's here that it tells us where. And we need to understand today because, uh, because prophecy is difficult. The prophets are probably one of the hardest uh, aspects of the Old Testament for us to understand. And the reason is twofold. One, because it's chock full of imagery and symbolism. And all of that imagery and symbolism is drawn from a culture that is not our, not our own. Uh, and two, because it deals specifically with a time that is not our own. The audience of Micah is not this audience, not first and foremost. It's the 8th century B.C. audience of Judah. And so the things that he's addressing, the things that are significant in history, are ancient history to us which we're not generally familiar with. But it's worth pointing out here that this little verse here by the Jews has always been seen as messianic. There can be this tendency sometimes to go, maybe we're just reading the Old Testament through a Christian interpretation. But the Targum, the Jewish commentary that predates the coming of Jesus on the minor prophets sees this as being one of many Old Testament messianic prophecies. They were looking unto Bethlehem, and you can see the fingerprints of that in the Gospels themselves. You may remember that in the Christmas story, that these three wise men from east of Israel come following a star, and they come where? Looking for this king who's to be born. Jerusalem. And they go, where is the king? So Herod calls his wise men, and where do they go? They say, oh, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. They quote this passage. 
If you read the Gospel of John, when Jesus is on his adult ministry, those who know him know that he lives not in the southern part of Israel, in Judah, in Bethlehem, but in the northern part of Galilee, in Nazareth. And so in John chapter 7, they go, wait, how can this man be the Messiah? Because he's from Nazareth, and we know the Messiah comes from Bethlehem, not knowing his origin story. That makes Jesus sound like a superhero. But they're not acquainted with the intimate details of his childhood. But the Jews had this expectation. They were looking towards this fulfillment. Now it says more about this coming one in verse 2. Not only will he come from Bethlehem, surprisingly, but notice what it says next there. It says, from you shall come forth for me. That language is once again significant because of the story of David. When God sends Samuel to anoint a new king to the house of Jesse, Jesse who has, uh, who has seven sons, he says, go and anoint a king who will rule for me. You see, there's a current king in Israel in that story. His name is Saul. And he's a man after Israel's own heart. He's exactly the king they wanted head and shoulders above the rest from a military family, a king like the other nations, just like Israel had asked for. But David was different. He was a man after God's own heart. He was the one that had been chosen. You can go back before David exists to the story of Ruth, and you can see that God, in the days of the judges, has a plan to bring a king, and that king's name is not Saul. And he does not come from the tribe of Benjamin. He comes from the line of Judah. Israel gets restless, makes demands. God meets those demands, but he still has in the the bullpen his plan, his king, one who will rule for him. And so that language is used here. And then it says something fascinating. It says, one who will be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. From Bethlehem. But that's not the whole story. The word it uses here for ancient days is the one it uses in Psalm 90 to talk about the fact that God has always been. It's a phrase that speaks of beginnings before history. It reminds us of what John's Gospel says when it says, in the beginning was the word. Draw the line, call it a beginning. Before that, the word who he goes on to identify as Jesus already was. Isaiah makes the same claim. In fact, many Old Testament prophecies straddle this line by clearly a man born, a baby, and something more. And that's significant because the peace we're about to talk about in the rest of the chapter stems from the reality of who this is. God doesn't have a peace plan. He doesn't have steps to follow. He doesn't come up with a strategy. He sends a savior. And the reason that Savior is up to the task, pulls off the job, can accomplish what we need when we cry out for peace is because he is more than a man. He is the one from ancient of days. He is God himself. Now, now that we understand the one who it says in verse 5, he shall be their peace. Now that we've met him who is peace, the Prince of Peace, now we can ask what kind of peace will he bring? Notice verse 3. 
Therefore, he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Okay, so he's setting a timeline. When it says he shall give them up, it's talking about the people of Judah. Judgment is still coming. The promise is there. A ruler is coming, but that's later in the story. He will give them up, it says, until she who is in labor has given birth. Now, it may be, it may be here that Micah is familiar with the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 7 the one that was given to King Hezekiah uh, of the coming virgin birth and all that that would entail. More likely here, the reference to she who is in labor speaks of Judah itself, of the tribe of Judah. That's a common way of talking for the prophets to see Israel and the judgment they're going through as like a woman in labor, travailing, moving towards a birth, painful and difficult and dangerous but leading to joy. But either way, notice what happens next. It's not happening now. It will come, and then what does it say? Then the rest of his brothers, whose brothers? Judah's brothers, the rest of Israel. Remember, they're already gone in the story. They've already been taken into the land of Assyria. The rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. So what it does is it looks forward to not just the restoration of the northern tribes, but also the reconciliation of the northern tribes and Judah into one nation as they were supposed to be. You see, under Saul and under David, there was one nation of Israel and one king. But after David and Solomon, Solomon's son and another man, Jeroboam and Rehoboam, if it wasn't hard enough to keep track of who's who, uh, the nation is split into two parts. And so this verse here speaks of reconciliation and unity. And that's where peace begins. I found a very unfortunate flaw in my thinking, which is I tend to want the right things, but not in my current circumstances. So I want a family, but not this family, right? I want to do ministry, but not here. I want to have unity, and I'm going to go away from the people who are right next to me and find it elsewhere, right? We have this idealism that assumes what's wrong with the world is somewhere out there, and we can find the place where we belong. We make the mistake that I think is well reflected in the story of Noah, right? Here you have this reality where all the intentions of the imaginations of man heart, man's heart is always evil continuously. And so there's this great flood and only one family is spared and then the first thing that happens in the narrative is that one family goes through wicked chaos caused by their own sin. Noah, the patriarch, gets drunk. His son does something that's completely inappropriate and hard to understand. How did that happen? I thought it was a brave new world. I thought this was Eden 2.0. I thought this was a fresh start. Why is there sin in the new world? Because sin got on the boat. And sometimes we run from our circumstances, but we can't run from ourselves. And so it talks here of these two nations divided and separated being restored. And the gospel in the New Testament pushes this even further. It's not just reconciliation and unity between Judah and the other ten tribes. It's not just, uh, not just peace in the midst of the nation of Israel, but peace 
between Jew and Gentile. Listen to what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. In verse 11, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, that's most of us this morning, non-Jews, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace. Do you hear that reference there? Where does he get that statement that Jesus is our peace? He gets it from Micah. Paul sees the significance goes beyond the 12 tribes of Israel being reunited and says even those who are not Jewish will be reconciled. Listen how he continues verse 14. For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. You see, Christ brings reconciliation, destroys division, ends hatred. And Paul here is merely illustrating this great barrier that Jew and Gentile would have understood. This great line between us and them. Peace means reconciliation. Not separate but equal. Not division, but prosperous, but true restoration and unity. Jesus makes reconciliation so significant, he says that when there's something between us and another person, dealing with that should precede our worship. He says if you go to the altar and you remember that someone has something against you, first go to them and be reconciled and then bring your gift. Peace means more than armistice. It doesn't mean merely going our separate ways and refusing to engage, whether hostile or friendly. It means reconciliation. It means unity. And as Paul talks about in the book of Ephesians, we have something that significantly makes reconciliation possible. Something that unifies us in the midst of our diversity. We may be different in race or in culture or in economic status, but we have both our need for Jesus and the provision of him in common. And that trumps all differences. We may still, as a church, deal with offending one another with our sins, harming one another with the fact that we are still selfish. But the forgiveness of Jesus Christ is so significant that each and every one of those can be cleansed and dealt with. Restoration and reconciliation is possible. But that's not all there is to peace. Back in Micah chapter 5, look at verse 4. It says of this one who is to come, the Messiah, he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure for now, he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. 
The second aspect envisioned here in the peace that is to come is of provision and of guidance. The image used here is of a shepherd, which is not just a common one to the land of Israel, but common to the way that they saw their king. In fact, David, the ideal king's first job, was what? A shepherd. And so the recognition here is not just that the nation will be restored, but that their king will operate as a shepherd who provides for his people and provides them with security. Notice what it says uh, at the end there. They shall dwell secure for now. Protection, provision, and guidance. The idea here is one who takes care of and loves and provides for, and most likely it makes you think of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. You see, a major aspect of the Jewish idea of shalom has this idea of provision, has this idea of needs being taken care of. Okay, so... Um, a ceasefire and starvation just fall short of the peace that we're talking about. But the problem is, this starts to come into the place both where we sometimes go, yeah, but what does that really look like in life? That's part of the reason I struggle with believing in Jesus on a day-to-day basis is because this is the peace that was promised, but here's the life that I live. But even in Psalm 23, we have a tendency to miss the circumstances. David goes on in that psalm and he says that he prepares a table in the midst of my enemies. David's life, as he speaks about the beautiful shepherding that he experiences from this God who personally loves and cares for him, is not a life without difficulty, hardship. It's not even a life where David always never struggles or questions or doubts. Read the rest of the psalms. You can only read Psalm 23 in the context of all the others. But take the imagery of just that line, he prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. First off, notice he doesn't say he packed me MREs for the front line. Right? These are not freeze-dried, get-you-by, survivalist provisions. This is a banquet, but where is it taking place? On the front lines. Bullets whizzing by, and yet the protection is secure. You see, the peace that the New Testament says we have in Jesus is a peace that surpasses understanding. And we would generally settle for an understandable peace. We want everything to be visibly and obviously good so that we don't have to worry, which is really just another way of saying we don't have to trust. What he gives us here is not provisions, but a provider. And the way we develop our relationship with that provider is personal. It's ongoing. It involves praying daily, as Jesus taught us, give us today our daily bread. Because yesterday's may not have been sufficient for what's now today. The recognition here of of shepherd imagery is an ongoing but personal provision and guidance. And it can happen in the midst of difficulty and chaos. There is not a scrap of evidence, a verse in the entirety of the Bible where you can find people speaking of the peace that God provides 
and remove it from this context of difficulty. When Paul talks about provision, that uh, uh, what's that verse we love to quote in Philippians 4? Um, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And he goes on a little bit later in the chapter and he says, and God will provide all your needs in Jesus Christ. Where is Paul writing those words from? Prison. The significance of this is not less than God taking care of our wants and needs. It's deeper than that. It's a satisfaction that penetrates deeper and allows us to navigate the difficulties of life and still have peace. But it goes on, and we see, beginning in verse 5, protection from enemies. Peace is great until it's broken. And it's very hard for us to enjoy peace in the midst of an oncoming and unseen threat. Right? When we're on the cusp of war, when it seems like an attack is imminent, is that a time of peace? Pragmatically, I guess, if you wanted to be a nerd about it, you could say, sure. Right? The war hasn't started yet, but does it live like a life of peace? No, a major part of peace is recognizing protection. That's why we just read it in verse 4, that they shall dwell securely. Security means non-threatened. And so notice what it says as it continues in verse 5. He shall be their peace when the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces. Then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, and they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with swords and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our borders. Okay, now here's what you have to remember. When he mentions the Assyrians here, that's the last enemy that came through town, okay? Those are the ones who came through and conquered the other ten tribes of Israel and carried them away. Judah doesn't actually get conquered by the Assyrians at all, but by the Babylonians, okay? But he chooses them because they are a, uh, a visible and memorable picture of enemies. It's a clear and present danger, okay? In fact, at this time, before Babylon is really on the rise and on the scene, they're not even seen coming yet. Assyria is the most likely threat to Judah's, Judah's history. And so he speaks in those words. But the way we should read it today is in the present tense. A recognition that the peace is being talked about here has to do with our present tense enemies. Now it's worth pointing out here that the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ and the nation of Israel are significantly different because the kingdom of God in Jesus Christ is not a nation. And so we're not talking about our national enemies here. But as he lays this out, he speaks of the enemies and he uh, speaks of protection. And so they may come in, but they'll be routed. It says that other shepherds will be raised up to protect. And then notice what it says in verse 6. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. So he starts in the present tense with Assyria as an illustration. Then he goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Okay. Now there's a hint there. The land of Nimrod, that's Babylon. Okay. So he's, he's pointing to what's coming down the pike, a little bit veiled. But when he uses the name Nimrod, we are talking about the Bible's first conqueror. The first man who realized, you know what, I could probably equip an army and take a bunch of land and make myself ruler. 
That's who Nimrod was. Significantly, he touched points with Nimrod to broaden out the idea of enemy. But there's another clarification we need to make. See, here's one of the things that's really interesting about the prophets. They talk sometimes as if what the Messiah is going to do is restore Israel to the land, bring them back in, and they talk other times about this being an international affair. This is one of those other times. Look at verse 7. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. How can that be and then be restored to Israel as we saw? How is it both and here? One of the reasons that is is because the prophets um, have a tendency prophetically to telescope things. Imagine you're looking out on the horizon and you can see two major peaks. Because of their distance, it looks like they're side by side. But what if you drove and reached one of them and then realized the other one was much bigger than you thought and further off? Okay? That's what I mean by prophetic telescoping. They look down and they see the things that are coming. They don't see the valleys in between. And so there's a recognition here of both a gathering and a scattering. But it also provides an illustration for us of what we're talking about. The security that we're talking about is not a security of walls and fortresses and being away from them. It's something different. Notice what it says in verse 7. The remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many people. Look at verse 8. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. Sometimes the peace that we want is a getaway, a removal from life, an isolation, a monasticism, right? A commune. We make that same mistake that Noah made, and we thought we think we'll just we'll just move to an island and we'll invite only Christians and then everything will be fine. Okay? We did that. You're living in that. Right here. That's what America is. Okay? But God's plan in Jesus Christ is not one of removal and isolation, but dispersal and presence. That's what we see envisioned here. And the reason is because, as we'll see in the new year, we're called to be ambassadors, right? I'm going to spoil the plot and just talk about this now. Uh, when you live in a, wor- a country that's not your own, there's really two paradigmatic ways to live, as ambassador or as tourist, and they're completely different, right? The tourist lives to get everything they can until they have to go back home. They live to enjoy all the offerings. The ambassador is there to represent where he came from. Here, the idea is that God is going to scatter his people throughout the nations to be a presence, to have a ministry among the people. This is why in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are the peacemakers, not the peaceful, not those who have peace, not those who get away from the wars and the famine and the difficulty and the darkness, but the ones who are in the midst, on the front lines, proclaiming peace. But I want you to notice that the imagery it uses here in verse 7 and verse 8 is parallel. We already saw that. So verse 7 begins, the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples. And then we have a parallelism in verse 8, the remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. Those are synonymous in their parallel. But the rest of what it says in verse 7 and 8 are contrasting. Notice what it says in verse 7, in the midst of the many people like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, 
which delay not for a man, nor wait from the children of man. And so the picture here is one of dew and showers. It's one of giving life. It's one of nourishment. It's one of, uh, of uh, creation. But look at the contrasting metaphor in verse 8. Here in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes down through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. How do you reconcile these two things? Is it a life-giving or a judgment-bringing reality? And if you've been with us in the letter of Paul to the Corinthians that we know as 2 Corinthians, he says that my life and my presence in the world is both a fragrance of life and a fragrance of death. The idea here is not (coughs) proclaim peace and if they won't take it, then conquer them with a sword. The idea is deeper than that. It's the recognition that just by our presence and by our witness, we are both proclaiming salvation and judgment. There's an intermingling of these ministries. They go hand in hand. And yet in the midst of this, we're promised protection. Jesus uses a different animal to illustrate our calling as Christians. It's not a lion. It's a sheep. He says, I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. That should sound foolish to you, okay? That sounds like bad shepherding. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make, is the look of this is going to look like bad news. It's going to look ineffective, destructive, poor strategy. Listen to how Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 8. There will be enemies to us because there's enemies to Jesus. And that's not merely other people, but in another place, Paul says, look, we don't war against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness. It's not about the enmity of other people. That's variable. It's about the enmity of the accuser, of Satan, of those uh, involved. And so listen to how Paul talks here when he says this in verse verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then jump down to verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Notice what he says there. We wish he would say, what shall separate us from tribulation and sword and poverty and darkness? And he says, no, 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 no. None of those things can separate us from the love of Christ. We would settle for a safe life, for one that's unexposed to danger, The one Paul talks about here is one where God's love for us endures and is untouched and indestructible, even though it is greatly tested. In fact, he quotes from the Old Testament as it is written, and he says, you want to know what the life of a believer of Christ is like? He says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. What's that famous saying about war? That it's essentially a battle of attrition, right? Who can lose the most? 
The Christian life looks like loss because sacrifice always looks like loss. But that's not the end of the story. In fact, he says, no, in the midst of what looks like defeat, we are more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. He continues and he says this. He says, I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor thing to co- things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What in your life is causing havoc right now? What is it that you're afraid of? What is it you feel like is going to overtour- overturn your security? What is it that robs you psychologically of your peace? Clearly, Paul refers to it here. Not only does he include all these things, height and depth, sword and famine, persecution, difficulty and tribulation, but he says anything else in the created world. That's peace. Knowing that what we have cannot be taken from us. And so it speaks here of protection from our enemies. But it goes on in the book of Micah. And this is an important point to make. I know when we talk about enemies, I know when we talk about judgment, it makes us uncomfortable. But one of the things the Bible never does is divide the world into us and them. That doesn't remove the enmity. It doesn't remove the judgment. In fact, we see that clarification here in verse 10. In that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you. I will destroy your chariots and I will cut off your cities from your land, literally your strongholds, and throw down all your strongholds. Okay. Doesn't that seem strange? I'm bringing peace? And then he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to kill off all your horses. I'm going to destroy all your chariots and every fortress you've ever built, I'm going to demolish. Why? Because a war takes two sides. Because we're not just those who long for peace, we're also the war makers. We're also the enemies of God. We're also the enemies of one another. And God here says that I am going to make you peaceful. Listen, So much of the conflict and the chaos in our lives, despite the fact that we blame everybody else, begins with us. And we recognize this tension at the national scale, right? How easy is it for us as modern Americans or any other major world power nation to say, we are about peace and stockpile our warheads? Why? Because we're about peace, but most and primarily we're about our own interests. And if you touch those, there's going to be hell to pay. Do you really think that that's not just the collective reality of the human condition playing out on the national scale? We like to remove ourselves from that, call ourselves pacifists. James will not allow us the title. Listen to what he says in James chapter 4. says this 
What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not that this, that your passions are at war within you? He says, why is there war without? Why do you find yourselves in conflict and work and family? Why are you having all these fights and frustrations? He says it's because of an internal war. He says there's fights outwardly because there's fights inwardly. He continues, you desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? What's he saying here? He's saying here that you want things, and because you don't get them, you take them. You take people in your life, and you see them as obstacles to what you want, and so you fight them. The only way that we will experience peace as humankind is if people change, and not just them, but us. Not just mom, but me. Peace involves a contentment that allows you to lay weapons down. And if you don't understand this, you make the mistake that's so easy to see from the outside and so hard to see in ourselves, like Samuel L. Jackson in Pulp Fiction, where you're quoting a made-up verse from Ezekiel, gun in hand, about the righteous. By the end of the movie, he starts to get it, and he goes, now I know I'm the evil man, and I'm trying so hard to be the shepherd. The greatest threat in your life against peace is you. And so here, the recognition is that God has a plan to deal with us as warriors, to remove our predisposition to fighting. When we speak of the enemies of God, we speak of ourselves. Notice, notice that he talks about disarmament of us here, but he doesn't start there. Just as I said, he goes right into the heart. And so what does he say next? He says he's going to cut off the strongholds, and then verse 12, I will cut off sorceries from your hand, and you'll have no more tellers of fortunes, and I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you, and you shall bow now more, down no more to the work of your hands. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. What is he saying here? He's recognizing, as James does, that it's these internal idolatrous desires. Not just that we want things, but we want things or else. Not just that we see something as good, but we see it as ultimate. It may sound like an oversimplification, but James says that's where the fighting comes from. That's why James calls us adulterous. He's not there talking about the physical aspect of lusting for a person that's not your spouse. He's talking about the spiritual reality of idolatry, that we make other things more important and see them as more satisfying and more necessary than God himself. As Paul says in Romans chapter 1, we forsake the creator and worship created things. And what is talked about here, and this is essential for peace, is purity. 
that our idolatrous heart needs to be replaced. Listen, the vision the Bible talks about of peace is incredible. Listen to how Micah puts it a chapter prior. This is in chapter 4. I love this verse. It says in chapter 4, verse 3, He shall judge between many peoples and shall decide for strong nations far away, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Micah is looking forward to a time where the only way that weapons will be useful is if they're reformed into farming tools. He's looking for a time where there will be no military school anymore because no nation will need to study war. He's looking towards a time of peace. But that is not just good diplomacy. It's regeneration. It requires a change in us. A unrooting of the violence in our own hearts. And that is not just a hatred of others, but an enmity against God. And so the peace that Jesus comes, comes at tremendous cost because the war, the war is in our hearts. And then there's one last statement, one last aspect of peace in verse 15. In anger and wrath I will execute vengeance on the nations that do not obey. It ends again in judgment. And like Nick mentioned in our catechism this morning, it's easy to feel the weight of that reality. But there is another way we should read statements like this, which is essential to the concept of peace. And that's the word permanence. That's the word permanence. Think of all of the peace treaties throughout history. How many have been broken? Well, I'll tell you, none of them are still going. Right? Because maybe you maintain peace here and you get wiped out from over there. But even, even more often, you get strong, you get prosperous, and now you're like, you know, there was a time where that treaty mattered to me, but not anymore. Just read the annals of World War II. Rome experienced a great peace as most of the Western world was unified under a single power. They even had a name for it, the Pax Romana doesn't exist now. Why? Because they got bloated and fat and stopped paying attention and the barbarians, the ones they thought were never capable, came in from, from the north and wiped them out. For peace to be true peace, it has to be permanent, which means that the threat has to be removed. And right now we live in a time of dew and young lions. We live in a time of an offering of life or death. We live in a time where the door to the ark remains open and we call all, without requirement, without prerequisite, to come and know this God of peace. But when we read in the book of Revelation about the new heavens where there will be no murderers inside, where there will be no sorcerers inside, there is a warning there. But there's also a tremendous relief. Heaven is a safe place. The permanence that's being talked about here is a recognition, a recognition of permanence, of finality, 
of a peace that will no longer ever be interrupted, of a rebellion that will be routed and ended. I know it's hard when we read Psalms like we did this morning, Psalm 58, and it talks about the righteous rejoicing as their feet are bathed in the blood of the wicked. But one of the things that we often forget is we don't really know war. We don't really understand oppression. Tim Keller says that a God without judgment is the uh, imaginary consequence of a white suburbia. We have a hard time resonating with the martyrs in the book of Revelation who have been decapitated for Jesus and under the throne are crying out, how long until you bring justice, Lord? We're talking here about the God who is long-suffering, patient, and just. But we are still talking about finality. We're still talking about permanence. We're still talking about eternal consequence. And all I want you to recognize this morning is although that, that, that should weigh on our hearts and it should call us to cry out all the more loudly, it is also a definitive aspect of peace. C.S. Lewis says this in, his, um, in The Problem of Pain when he's talking about hell. He says, what are you asking God to do? To make every sacrifice? To say all sins are forgiven? To invite them in at his own cost? He's done that. That's what the gospel is. It's an invitation that says, I will bear the full weight and penalty of your sin and freely offer you forgiveness. And he says, but what about for those who cannot come? God can't both bring them in and at the same time. He just says, what does it look like? What does it look like to, inv- or to bring them in when they will not come? I think ultimately the real reason we struggle with this reality is because we downplay our own need for salvation. I think if we saw the significance of our own sin and the incredible offering of grace in Jesus Christ to our own lives and the necessity of that, then I think these other things would make a little bit more sense. But nonetheless, when we talk about peace It's not merely peace and quiet. It's not peace of mind. It's not the cessation of war. It's so much more than that. It's reconciliation and unity. It's provision and guidance. It's protection from enemies, even in the midst of war. It's a transformation that makes us peaceful and pure, a laying down of our arms, and it's permanent. This is what God has promised to do in Jesus Christ. This is what God is currently doing in Jesus Christ. This is what God will do in Jesus Christ. This is what peace means. Let's pray.
God, the Old Testament looks forward in longing to the one who would come, who would bring peace, who would be the prince of peace, who himself would be our peace. And there are places, Lord, where the conflict still rages in our own heart because of the sins of our own heart in our own relationships, in the difficulty of circumstances, in the fact that the work that you've began is not yet finished. But we can experience that peace now. We can press into that peace. We can know it in our hearts. We can become peacemakers who seek to resolve and reconcile in others, both to one another and most importantly to God. We can live in a place of security despite the fact that tomorrow doesn't look so good. And we can live as witnesses, witnesses of the end of war, a peaceful people. We can lay down our arms against God and against one another and trust that God will take care of us now and that ultimately justice will be done. Pray, Lord, for every ounce in our holiday celebrations, in our political view, in our heart of hearts, that every ounce of violence would be uprooted and destroyed, and that we would proclaim the gospel of peace. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As we respond this morning by continuing to sing, if you're a Christian, please come forward and partake of communion on your own timing. Reflect on the fact <coughs> that the peace that we're talking about was costly. That Jesus' body was broken because we deserved to be broken. That his blood was shed and in that and that alone we stand as forgiven and as free as an ambassadors of the kingdom of Christ. But let's take some time this morning and just reflect. And I would encourage you once again to heed Jesus' words. And if there's a pressure point in your life, a place where reconciliation remains to be done, do it now. Begin that conversation now. Calendar that coffee now. Make that phone call now. Tap that person on the, sh on the shoulder now. And then come and worship, enjoying the reality of the peace promised by Jesus. Let's respond. <clears throat>